If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime. Ever wondered how we ended up with the largest prison population of any country? Have you noticed that those whose jobs it is to protect and serve seem to be demanding more and more blind obedience? You didn't think it just happened by chance, did you? It's time to call attention to the fact our government is the most prolific slave owner on the planet. This is Surviving the System. Thank you very much for joining us today on Surviving the System. This is Dance and Dave. So today I have a little bit of a, a stray from the norm we're going to be visiting with a couple of gentlemen who have taken the fight for criminal justice reform right to the doorstep of the state of Nebraska. And, and I say that quite literally. We're, we're visiting today with Paul Feilman, who has been holding a vigil outside of the governor of Nebraska's mansion um, down in the Capitol to bring awareness of the criminal justice reform issues that we're facing here in the state of Nebraska. Uh, we've talked about it many times on the show before, so hopefully you're all aware. If not, this will give you a, a really good overview and hopefully some information you haven't had as of yet. We also have on the phone with us Steve Abraham. Uh, Steve and Paul uh, are very actively involved together on this, and Steve has a lot of information that he's going to be able to share with us uh, from behind the scenes. So together, we're going to be able to bring you a lot of good, uh, a lot of good content today. So, gentlemen, Paul, Steve, thank you very much for joining me today on Surviving the System. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for taking time out of your day, guys. I appreciate it. So, um, Paul, I'd like to start with you. Um, you and I have had the the opportunity to interact on on a small scale. We we volunteer with some organizations here in town and, and have had the opportunity to cross paths. But why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your background, and what led you to to do what you're doing today? Yeah, hey uh, Dave. Um, yeah, I, I really uh, appreciated the chance to talk to you a few times when we've worked together at uh, Rise program. I think that's a wonderful program. You and I both have had great experiences there. Uh, that's given me some firsthand knowledge of the prison system and gotten a chance to really get to know some guys. I also volunteer for a seven-step group in uh, Nebraska State Penitentiary. I go in there every couple weeks and sit in on a, what they call a seven-step self-help group. It's a club. Uh, a lot of the older, old-timer guys are trying to help the younger guys. Uh, make some character development changes and get out of uh, 
prison and not come back again. So I, I've been involved in that. Uh, Tila Nichols from Compassion in Action helped me get involved with that about a year, a little over a year ago. So those are my two uh, main experiences with uh, direct contact with the criminal justice system. I, um, I've got, uh, uh, I'm a licensed mental health therapist. Did that for about 25 years. Uh, got out of uh, school and got uh, going with uh, many different aspects of mental health. I worked with kids and families. Uh, I did some long-term mental, mental health treatment for folks with chronic mental illness. I did a lot of uh, consulting and uh, social work, mental health uh, work with uh, elementary schools and worked for a nonprofit family, Heartland Family Service, did a lot of work supporting uh, families there. Then um, I, during that process, I've raised uh, five kids. They uh, range between uh, 25 and 43. I've got seven grandkids, trying to keep them all on the straight and narrow. They've had their various issues, but uh, we've all worked together as a team, and my wife has really uh, done great. She's worked with me, been a real teammate in this whole process. She just survived uh, cancer. Uh, we got through some pretty uh, difficult times for uh, a couple years, and uh, she's doing real well right now, and, uh, you know, we're just hoping for the best down the road. Well, good. I'm glad I got to hear. Out. Yeah, I'm glad to hear she's doing okay. Sorry to interrupt you. Go, go ahead. No, you're okay. Um, when I retired, I actually what I did uh, to take, to raise five kids, I worked for UPS at night, and then um, I was able to uh, go. To, actually, I drove for UPS full time for about seven or eight years, and I retired about a year and a half ago. Uh, when I turned 63, I was able to get a pension and uh, was able to retire, and I. I told my wife before I retired, I really kept watching things in the news. I watched uh, things for about three years in the news and just felt like there's a lot of things going on in our community that are not very healthy and affect the whole community. In the poverty area in particular, I told her I really wanted to try and do some things to address those issues when I uh, retired. And so I started uh, a friend of mine, actually, he did teammates. He's a teammate is a, a mentoring program sponsored by uh, Tom Osborne and uh, my friend Tom Miller uh, was their primary recruiter for Omaha Public Schools for mentors for 20 years. So he got to see firsthand um, all the things that were you know, going on as far as the need for mentors in the poverty areas and so forth. And we kind of put our heads together and discussed some ways that we might be able to start working together in our retirement years to uh, to you know, to help the community and, and make things uh, more positive for folks. That led us to an interesting trail. I did some volunteer work for a program called In Common down South Omaha, community organizing folks that are trying to uh, empower the community. And I did an ESL class. I met a teacher there who was working at a um, high poverty elementary school in kindergarten. And she, uh, talked to me about the struggles that kids were having there dealing with poverty. And uh, I also learned that a lot of those kids are heavily affected by uh, intergenerational incarceration of family members. So that led uh, Tom and I to start looking into issues related to the criminal justice system. We met with a long-term advocate uh, named John Cretchy. He's uh, been doing uh, criminal justice reform for probably 25 years. 
we set up a meeting with him just to learn about the criminal justice system in, in Nebraska, and he asked if he could have a guest attend uh, our meeting, a friend of his. That turned out to be Doug Kobernick, who is the Inspector General for Corrections. So Tom and I got quite a quite an earful. That was over a year ago. We got quite an earful from Doug about the problems that are plaguing the system, the overcrowding, the extensive use of solitary confinement, um, and so forth. So Tom and I actually, we uh, began communicating and learning about some of these issues and worked with uh, Senator Lathrop and Senator Vargas um, and some other folks to lobby for the passage of the uh, criminal justice bill that was passed this year that restricts the use of solitary confinement um, for vulnerable populations. That's people that have mental illness, uh, traumatic brain injury, mental disability, uh, women, uh, or um, people that are under the age of 18. And that bill actually did get passed. But it became really clear that the use of solitary confinement in the prison system is really heavily connected to the overcrowding. It's just crowd control techniques that the corrections department has to use to manage the overcrowding. So we kind of decided that um, trying to fix things in the prison uh, overcrowding situation was going to do a lot more to uh, address the um, use of solitary confinement. Because until that changed, uh, you know, nothing was going to change. So. Doug Kobernick's continued to be my main source of information. His, his new report just came out, which he has spoken about. The uh, overcrowding has just continued to escalate, uh, making things dangerous for everybody in the system and staff and residents. Um, and the community's safety is jeopardized considerably because rehabilitation is just not, you know, not adequate uh, for people. Pe- Folks coming back into the community, the reentry support's not adequate, so the risk of victims um, from crime is really high because these guys will come out, and if they haven't had a chance to get their lives turned the right direction, they're going to go back to things that are causing them problems. And uh, I've talked to several people in the last year that have a lot of good ideas and are doing a lot of great things in the criminal justice system. But there's just not enough resources or effort put into collaboration, and that's what I'm trying to do. Stephen Abraham has been helping me. Um, some other folks have been supporting me uh, by raising awareness at this vigil of the crisis that we're facing and the fact that if you've got a collaboration of people together, the governor could lead that effort, and we could have some major uh, breakthroughs in the, in the overcrowding situation and the nature of our criminal justice system, making it much more positive and beneficial to the community. So that's, that's it in a nutshell, kind of a, a long little uh, summary there, but that's why I'm down here on the corner uh, trying to keep this issue out in front of the public and make sure that people understand that 5,500 people in prison and 3,000 people in jails are all being affected by this situation. And all those people have families and children and all of them are going to come back in the community and run the risk of re-victimizing people in the community if they don't have resources to come back as productive citizens. How's and that, Dave? That was fantastic, <laughs> man. That, that was fantastic. And just to just to clarify on one real quick point, 
you you are outside of the governor's mansion right now. You're actually calling in from your vigil at this moment. Is that correct? Yeah, I just broke out the umbrella. The rain just kicked up a little bit. And, uh, gotcha. How has how's the reception been? You know, I, I've been keeping up with you on social media. I know it looks like some people have been stopping to connect with you, but what, what has it been like for you, boots on the ground there? How's the reception been? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's been, that's, that's the interesting thing. I, I, I really feel like I'm trying to take a positive approach to things, keep things positive. And I have not gotten, uh, I don't think I've gotten any negative feedback. I think one day I had a, a long conversation with a sheriff from Pierce County. Uh, he came up and uh, he was a little bit miffed by what I was doing, but we talked for over an hour and discussed um, the long-term consequences to to society and the cost of uh, there's one individual that just got sent to Tecumseh as a, a you know as a young adult and he's going to be there for life and it and the sheriff goes well that's forty thousand dollars a year and I said I know that's and then he could have been in the community being a productive citizen instead he got caught up in gangs and a gang shooting and now his life is going to be spent in Tecumseh State Prison, and Nebraska is going to be paying for it. So by the time we got done talking, we had a lot of good information shared about his experiences working as a sheriff and um, out in the rural areas and uh, the difficulties that folks deal with in the criminal justice system out in rural areas. So, yeah, but overall, I have gotten really no negative feedback. My family's a little, they they're a little curious about what I'm doing, but um, they they kind of roll with the dad. He, they know I'm a retired social worker. I kind of got a interesting take on life. But other than that, you know, everybody's pretty cool and, and uh, getting a lot of positive feedback. No one's given me any uh, really uh, negative feedback at all. So I feel like, so, you know, I've gotten good media coverage. Um, I've, I've tried to keep the message positive. I've talked to, to Mike, uh, Brian Mastery at Channel 6 a few times. I've talked to... Um, Channel 7, and, uh, you know, uh, Paul Hamill's been real positive and and trying to uh, relay information that I'm trying to communicate through the World Herald. So it's it's been awesome. That's the whole point of this vigil is to raise awareness. I think a lot of people in the community just don't have a sense of how lives are affected by the criminal justice system. And if they do, they'll realize that um, a healthy community uh, has a healthy criminal justice system. Um, rehabilitation uh, system. And just to kind of touch a little bit on on one of the, the statements that you made there, and we'll expound on this for, for people who maybe don't know what the statistics are, but to incarcerate someone in the state of Nebraska costs the taxpayers $40,000 a year. However, if that same individual were put on some type of parole or probation, and allowed to be in the community working under some type of supervision, then the amount is about half of that to the taxpayers. So yeah, and I think that the the example that I use the uh, the gentleman that I uh, referred to you earlier, his name is Ty. <clears throat> excuse me, Ty Sullivan. He's a he came over and talked to me one day, and he's a perfect example. Uh, Stephen Abraham's on the line with us, and he'll be able to talk a lot more about this issue of 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 reentry to the community and being a productive citizen because Steve's doing some amazing things. 
in the community um, since he's gotten his life turned around. But Ty came over because he saw my sign about criminal justice reform and introduced himself. And he is actually um, working as an electrician in the state capitol building on the remodel that's been going on. He's got a, a very um, a well-paying job, taking care of his family. He's married. But this is a gentleman who spent 16 years in Nebraska State Penitentiary and just got off parole two months ago. Now, this is a gentleman who talked extensively with me and Michael Scott on the radio show about what it was like to be in the prisons when they had rehabilitation. He was able to get his college degree. He was able to get a experience as an electrician. And when he got out, he was hired immediately and was able to become a productive citizen. Now, you contrast that with somebody that's sitting in prison for their, you know, for 20, 30 years and not getting any education or rehabilitation because of overcrowding. The contrast is so stark that I, that's what we're trying to do. Stephen and I are really working hard to, uh, you know, get this information out to the community about how healthy, how much healthier the community can be if we invest in people, not prisons. And I think that's a pretty good segue then. So, Stephen, I know you've been very patiently waiting, so thank, thank you very much while we took that time to, to meet with Paul. But um, tell me a little bit about yourself. You and I have not had the opportunity to, to interact up till now, so I, I don't know anything about you either. Tell us all about you. Okay. Um, you know, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Stephen Abraham. Um, I'm one of the former commissioners for Omaha Housing Authority. I was elected about four years ago uh, by Gene Stauffer, got him here, uh, to perform duties to um, incorporate um, changes that, you know, are affecting the lives of individuals, which is housing. Um, for the most part, um, the Housing Authority has took aggressive measures to address um, issues, especially when it comes to um, incarcerate, uh, previously incarcerated individuals. Um, I also have uh, sat on the board of uh, Project Homeless Connect uh, for Blue Shirt Coordination of Security, and I've been on that board for about, about four years. And also um, I sat on the board of the um, Steering Committee for the Youth Detention Center, um, for one year, um, I've also sit on the um, the policy council, policy and procedure council for the early learning center. So um, I have a little bit of knowledge of um, of different scopes of life, uh, the young people, um, and with the early learning center that uh, incorporates uh, zero to three. Um, one of the other things that um, I'm currently doing is. Um, just being an advocate with Paul on the, um, you know, the prison reform because I was previously incarcerated and I haven't been um, in trouble since uh, 2000. So uh, I pride myself on that, just staying focused and being a positive, productive citizen within the community. Um, but I took that knowledge and that understanding and I knew that was um, needed to address the housing situation because a lot of individuals do couch surf when they're first getting out because they don't have a reliable or stable um, home to return to. 
Um, and in some cases, individuals may end up living with their grandparents or uh, another um, close relative. But um, for the most part, uh, I've been trying to do my part the best way possible to um, address some of the issues that are contributed to recidivism. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So you've kept yourself pretty busy. That's that's impressive. You've been very active in the community. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that just recently happened is, is that there was a $25 million grant, the Neighborhood Choice Grant, that was awarded. Um, it's only awarded to two cities in the United States. And uh, this grant allows for the renovation, redevelopment of certain properties. Um, also, that allowed us to access another $150 million plus of additional funding to redevelop our properties. Um, I, I think this is going to be a, a really big step into addressing some of the issues with, with recidivism by affordable housing. Affordable housing is what we would call mixed-income living, where uh, instead of putting people that are um, low income in a collective area, which a lot of people have um, deemed or coined as redlining, um, instead of that, um, putting in place opportunities for them individuals to become uh, workers in the, in the community and also um, having individuals that are already um, stable as far as their income and their living arrangements um, come in live in the same area that promotes uh, wellness that promotes diversity in regards to income but it also promotes um, confidence because when you start to see individuals that are trying to be successful the best way possible you, you tend to do that um, in the counseling terms some people coin it to be the looking glass um, it's you know you want to reflect on your community um, within yourself. So you want to be a representative of the community um, subconsciously, or you want to reflect in a positive way subconsciously. So um, these are opportunities that I feel that are very important. That, wow, that's, that's, I'm very impressed and that's, that's awesome. And I know Paul and I have had the opportunity to talk about this, but the, the housing issue specifically for uh, formerly incarcerated is is a, a big passion of mine and something that I'm working on the side with as well. But for people again who maybe don't quite understand some of the the statistics or the the problems that we're talking about, so when an individual exits the the Department of Corrections here in the state of Nebraska, you get a hundred dollar check and a pat on the back and good luck. We'll see you later. There, there's really almost no assistance with trying to find some type of housing. So if you don't have someone, friend or family, or, or someone in your corner helping your corner. you, 
you're going to end up essentially walking out the door homeless. Um, not yep. to mention the fact that then you've got to come up with your first month, last month, you've got the security deposits, you've got uh, utilities. I mean, you haven't been working for however long you've been down, so where are you supposed to come up with all of that? So there's been studies that have shown that when an individual comes out back into the community and they don't have a home and they're sleeping on someone's couch, you know, that example that you use, and maybe it's a friend's couch or they're staying with the grandparents or whatever it is, each time that they move to another couch where, where they've maybe worn out their welcome or situation changes and they have to go someplace else, the odds of them reoffending increase by 75% each time they jump a couch. So being able to provide them that stable housing, it's someplace that you can call home and not have to worry about if the bottom is going to be taken out from underneath you. That's, that's vital to a healthy transition back into the community. Is that, would you agree or, or is anything different you would say with that? No, I completely agree. Um, I think in my, um, Whenever I do a comparison of um, individuals or groups of individuals, I kind of look at myself. And I, I think about the things that I've went through in my life, and I, I went through the, the same things that you just mentioned. So as a commissioner uh, for Omaha Housing Authority, I seen that as an opportunity to really change some of the guidelines that are centered around returning citizens. And one of those things were... Uh, changing the criteria as far as, like, uh, when we deal with individuals with convictions, uh, specifically nonviolent convictions that usually resulted with uh, drugs. Um, in most cases, what we see is individuals with marijuana charges. Um, so the criteria changed this way. Um, previously, Omaha Housing Authority had a six-year um, wait if you were ever convicted of any crime, you um, you had six years that you had to wait in order to apply for housing. Well, I, me and my fellow commissioners, we both we all looked at this and said, is this contributing to recidivism? Is the is the housing authority contributing to recidivism? And we we found that that the answer is yes, and so we wanted to change that. We wanted to make sure that individuals had a fair shot so we changed the criteria from six years to two years after conviction that's an important change because once an individual is convicted um they may have two years a two-year sentence well this gives them the opportunity to come straight back out and apply for housing which would eliminate a, a portion or a small part of recidivism especially the couch surfing and um i thought that was really important you know um, and for the most part, um, it's new, it's relatively new. Um, so we're right now we're in the process of seeing how that's going to work, you know, we will, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get you back on here at a separate time and we'll really dig into that issue a little bit more, but I want to get back onto the topic of Paul. Let's go back to the inspector general's report. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm sure with everything that you're doing, you've probably had the chance to stay on top of 
uh, all of the news that's come out about this, but let's go back and talk about that Inspector General's report for anyone that's outside of Nebraska or anybody that just hasn't been keeping up with with the, the situation itself. So when that report came out, you know, we continue to talk about the, the overcrowding problem and how bad it is, and it's, I mean, it's, it's at epic levels at this point. We're the second worst in the nation. But that the, the report also talked about a couple of other issues that, that work in tandem with that to cause part of this issue. Did you, have you had a chance to talk to, to Doug about that? Any feedback or, or information that you might have about that report from your end? You know, it, um, I haven't gone through it in detail, but uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I, re, I pretty much rely on Doug's feedback. He and I have been really in communication about all these criminal justice reform issues, including the solitary confinement, since I first met him. He's very accessible. Um, I call him. He'll share information with me. He also is a, a primary source of information to Steve Lathrop, who's the head of Judiciary Committee, and uh, I started getting a flavor this summer that things were were actually getting worse instead of better. Um, been hoping that things were slight, you know, going to slightly improve, but he was giving me information this summer that um, he was seeing a lot of uh, signs that things are getting more and more dangerous. One here's one indicator he gave me, which is. Um, it's it's pretty telling sign that things are getting dangerous is that there were, as of August, when I talked to him, there were 10 individuals in the state of Nebraska prison system that were in solitary confinement, which is basically a 23 hour a day isolation. And they had been there for over a thousand days. So that's a, that was a really, you know, in the, uh, the standards used by the UN, United Nations, for determining whether you're using torture on prisoners is isolation for uh, 15 days. So um, the continued effects of solitary confinement, uh, the release of people directly into the community from solitary confinement poses a, a significant danger to the community because you got uh, serious mental illness problems developing, uh, trauma and hostility and um, all kinds of issues that when people come out of solitary confinement directly into the community, the, the risks to the community are, are extensive. Um, the other issues that we've talked a lot about are the staffing issues. The, the environment is, is such that there have been numerous assaults on staff because the overcrowding has led to situations where there there be a malfunction in electrical equipment that opens up cells of guys that have been in solitary and they're um, very disturbed and angry and they will then uh, take out their anger on staff. There's been one individual in the spring was stabbed. A staff member was stabbed 15 times. He did, but he survived. <clears throat> the uh, uh, injuries in the jails. Uh, I've talked to the director of the jails, uh, Douglas County Jail, Mike Myers, and he's he's dealing with overcrowding there. And he talked about some serious injuries uh, to staff there. One uh, woman had her uh, hand joint separated between the middle fingers. Another gentleman had his orbital um, socket fractured. Uh, these kind of injuries are getting more and more uh, serious. 
and the conflicts between the staff and the residents to where uh, they can't get people to work there because it's so dangerous. Um, they've made some efforts to increase the pay uh, last March, but right now they're still uh, using very inexperienced staff that are working long overtime hours, uh, 16-hour shifts. So you've got stressed staff, you've got stressed residents, and these are residents that are not getting any rehabilitation to a significant degree and uh, are being released back in the community and then uh, you know, they go back into their criminal lifestyle because that's all they have as an option. So, the, uh, yeah, that's where things are at right now. The, uh, there have not been any deaths among staff members in the Nebraska correction system, but the uh, risk is there. It's really imminent. I think Senator Lathrop talked about the heightened risk of a riot, which a riot is not, it goes beyond what they call a disturbance. A riot has to do with a possible um, takeover of a major part of the prison by residents in a violent takeover. These kind of risks are, are escalating, according to, to Senator Lathrop's interviews that I watched last week, and Inspector General Kobernick is seeing some of the heightened uh, uh, signs of uh, stress on everybody, including staff, that make him just as concerned about safety in the facilities. So that's why I continue to, to raise these you know, raise these concerns um, out here. That's that's probably what got me out on the vigil. Was I thought things were getting better, and then um, they had another lockdown one weekend where uh, a, I think a resident was assaulted. There was uh, the use of drugs involved, and the environment was just getting more and more dangerous. After Doug Kobernick had already indicated that things were dangerous, and I just felt like if the community's not aware of it, they're you know, something really bad is going to happen. So I, I felt like I could at least take my position down here at the governor's mansion to continue to raise awareness about the issue and the safety so that uh, what happened in Minnesota does not happen in Nebraska. In Minnesota, in the last, I think it's the last year, there's two documented deaths of corrections officers. One was immediately after an assault. Um, I think he had a heart attack, and then the other one was, an assault that took place between a residence and a, uh, a corrections officer that resulted in a death. And if that occurs, then the whole system is going to go into a major crisis. Uh, we saw what happened with the riots um, several years ago, and uh, things have not changed very much since then. What you get in talking to Inspector Kobernick and uh, Senator Lathrop is a lot of the smoke that was in there that you could see back in right before the riots occurred uh, in 2015 and 17, a lot of that smoke um, of indications of risk are there right now. And that's what it's, it's imperative that the community understand the danger that, that is going on right now in the prison system. And for, again, for those who haven't had the chance to, to keep up to date on anything that's happening here in Nebraska, there was a riot back in 2015, made national news, the Mother's Day riot. Actually, I was able to interview a gentleman, if you go back and, and look into the archives of the show, Mr. Sean Bina, who was incarcerated at Tecumseh and was there for the riot. And he was able to really give us a good behind-the-scenes look as to the environment that led up to 
that riot that started there on Mother's Day. And, yeah, I think you're right, and I think that that's a big part that that report talks about is the fact that it's, it's the same situation. The, the, the circumstances are all leading up to the same thing, and it just seems like nothing's being done about it. So the, the governor came out earlier this week and made a response to the inspector general's report that came out last week. And, I mean, essentially his, his response was, in my opinion, I, I can't find the appropriate word for it. I'll just say mind-boggling. I, I, can't, I don't know if he is disconnected from reality or has just dug his heels in, but his response was essentially, nope, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Don't need to worry about it. But if you guys have any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Thanks for your time. So have you heard anything from his end while you're down there, or, or has any of that trickled down to your end as far as his response or lack thereof? Anything you could add on that? Well, and Steve and I had a long talk about this last night, and, and I really feel like this is not – I see it as more of a community issue than it is a issue i think it's like the analogy that i use is if say dave you were say i had you teaching a kindergarten class okay in, in, in a poverty school with high need kids um and then uh you got i'll give you 20 kids and then the next year uh, we have to make cutbacks and what happens then is that um we give you 35 kids and uh so then you're going to have to try and manage the situation and the situation with 35 kids instead of 20 kids. Uh, how, how well are you going to be able to meet the needs of those kids in that classroom? And that's what we've done to the corrections system here, the community. I heard a senator say one time that um, the state of Nebraska has balanced the budget by cutting funds to corrections for the last 25 years. I talked to the director of uh, the Judiciary Committee, John Lindsay, who uh, is a friend of mine. I didn't realize he was the head of Judiciary 25 years ago. He said that the budget or that the overcrowding percentage was at 157% 25 years ago. So that continues to be a, a, an issue where the community does not value uh, people that are incarcerated, does not understand the impact of of failing to rehabilitate and support positive reentry, so resources have have been cut, and the, the circumstances just continue. So it really needs to be the community uh, stepping up and offering resources. Uh, Steve and I talked about trying to get um, organizations and uh, philanthropists and other leaders in the community to offer their support to the governor with ideas and resources. So that this just isn't something that the director of corrections, uh, Director Frakes, has to deal with by himself. Because it's, I see it as, as, you know, almost impossible to do without making the kinds of changes that the community can bring resources to bear. Whether it be reentry or prevention, um, extra resources for rehabilitation. All these are areas that the community needs to step up. And I'm trying to get the governor to be open to hearing those ideas um, and looking at uh, developing those ideas through a, a task force, which would bring community members to look at, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a state emergency. Um, 
to take a look at ways that uh, things could be changed and bring in input. I know that the governor just got back from a trip to Vietnam on a trade. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Trade uh, trip. You know, he, he could send people to Germany and have them look at uh, the massive uh, influx of resources that have been put into the uh, criminal justice system in Germany, where they professionalized the staff and they've, they've developed amazing rehabilitation, um, bringing those kind of ideas or looking at Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, which is the largest gang reentry rehabilitation program in the world. It's been in existence for 30 years. Guys come out of prison, they get mental health, substance abuse, job training, um, legal health, case management, uh, just an extensive array of resources and support, and they also get job training through industries that have been developed by Homeboy Industries. Uh, there's a Homeboy Bakery, Homeboy Silkscreen, there's Homeboy uh, Homegirl Cafe and LAX International Airport and the courthouse. This is a model yeah. that it's like don't try and reinvent the wheel. Uh, the reentry programs in Nebraska are are doing great things, but you need to probably triple the investment in uh, reentry support. If you gave every guy that walks out of the prison on parole uh, 18 months of reentry support, you could cut your recidivism rate way down. And um, so it's those kind of things um, that the community needs to step up and take responsibility for and not keep blaming the director of corrections for it. Because once the numbers go down, I think the director of corrections, like the RISE program, you and I go in on the RISE program, that's a great program. It's got a really great recidivism rate, but it's just not enough resources um, and efforts being made to promote those kind of programs because it's so overcrowded, they can't implement them. Steve, what, what do you think? Where, where is your perspective coming in on what we should do, the governor's response, what he should be doing? Tell us your take. Well, you know, my um, my experience on that um, just comes basically from growing up. I'll start from my upbringings, and then I'll go to to that question. Um, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, on 24th Street in a place called Logan Fontanelle Projects. It was known, um, uh, the nickname was known as Little Vietnam, but a lot of individuals call it Vietnam Projects. Um during that time, um, I was born into um, the gang life. My brother before me and his friends were in the gangs. And so um, 
you know, I was basically initiate born into the gang life, and so that's all I knew. <clears throat> so when we talk, uh, the reason why I brought that up is because it depends on culture. Um, right now, we see a culture of individuals that say that um, the most knowledgeable people have degrees. Um, they have all of this, this education that they just got from learning from someone else instead of having the actual people that experienced it be the teachers um, or the, the individuals that are the facilitators um, for the services needed. I mean, um, when you have, um, when you go into the military, um, you have a drill sergeant. That drill sergeant is familiar with the military. And the new recruits, they want to go into the military. So they're willing to learn instruction from that drill sergeant. You're not going to go to the military and have someone that is um, an expert in bake, uh, as a baker, you know, um, baking goods, um, go in there and teach them about military strategic planning. <clears throat> so I kind of see that um, happening now. Um, you have individuals that have not experienced um, incarceration. They may not even have any family members that have experienced incarceration, but they're, they've educated themselves um, by learning the, um, you know, the, the juvenile justice system, um, the prison uh, system. They've educated themselves in that, and they feel that what they're doing is a good thing. Now, I'm not knocking that completely. But what I do feel is that individuals that have changed their lives, that have went through the, the, the things that we're talking about, they should be sitting at the table. Um, they, and, and they should have the power to make changes to um, existing rules so that they, they fit the parameters better for um, individuals that have been incarcerated or returning citizens, um, transitioning out. I mean, those those are very important things to to do. Um, a, a list of programs I know that currently exist. They teach individuals about financial literacy, uh, forms of different conflict resolution. But I think another thing that you you have happening is is that the individuals that um, that are receiving that information they may lose hope. And so they see themselves not really being a valuable contributing to the to the society because they know that once they get out, they're still going to be held liable for their crimes, even though that they've served um, in some cases a, a, a long long terms. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be transformed within the system. Now, I think it's going to start with policies and procedures because. Um, those are the things that govern us. I mean, when we go outside and we get in our vehicles, we have a certain um, things that we have to do. You know, maybe put your seatbelt on, maybe check your mirrors, um, check your blind spots. In the case of individuals that are returning citizens, they, they, they seem to not even have those opportunities to even do that. They're just told, like you said before, about the $100 uh, check, and a pat on the back and leave, well, that's a blind spot. 
because now you let that individual go back, you have programs in the, in the jails, maybe they don't qualify for certain reentry programs, and now they're couch surfing and their hope hasn't been reestablished. You know, and um, there's, a, there's a couple things that I feel are very important to, um, not, you know, just knock down the wheel of recidivism um, and really help the, um, the overcrowding. Because if, we, if, if you look at it this way, if you got individuals that have hope or inspiration or see value in themselves or in their community, then the, the overcrowding, you know, they're going to have people that to uh, less individuals that reoffend. Um, so there's, there's a couple ideas that I have, a um, couple perspectives. I, I know I gave um, as far as my upbringings, um, and I, I wasn't a long-term um, incarcerated individual. Um, my term um, being incarcerated was a year. So the chance that I got um, that I thought was very important is that I was able to talk to individuals that were doing 30 years, 50 years, life. And I got their perspective and understanding. And I'm like, man, and, and they all told me the same thing. Once you get out, don't return. So there's a big myth that individuals uh, try to keep you in the system with them, but they don't. They try to promote you to be out and be productive and maybe come back and be able to do something to, to create change within um, with, within uh, the jails. So um, that's, that's what I did. I, I got out. Um, I never looked back. Um, stayed out of trouble. Did a lot of positive things. Coached youth basketball. Uh, worked for the uh, Omaha Nighthawks when they were in existence as an assistant field manager. Um, at Rosenblatt and TD Ameritrade. Um, also, be a mentor, um, do gang intervention on the side. This is something that I wasn't being paid for. This is something that I just did. I, volunteer, I didn't even volunteer with an organization. I, I was in the gangs. I knew some of the people that were still active, and I went to them directly and did gang intervention by um, – instilling hope in them, you know, so that they see value in themselves. Hey, Steve. You know, a lot of people. Hey, hey Steve, will you, can you talk a little bit about that uh, movie that we watched together out of Omaha and, and what your perspective on that is and what those guys went through and how that was part, you know, what, what your thoughts are as far as your life? Yeah, uh, when, we, when me and Paul and a few other individuals went to the, uh, see the movie out of Omaha, um, instantly I've I, I seen a re- reoccurring theme that I was all too familiar with, which is individuals basically going into the gang life. Uh, the twins that were um, highlighted in the film, the brothers, their father was in the gang life and had been incarcerated as well. So... Um, in some cases, and I know this may sound strange to other people, um, but in some cases that's glorified because they feel that that individual is a, is a warrior and um, is willing to die for what they represent. So some people look at that as a badge of honor. Um, other portions of the movie talked about um, the changes that they did. Um, 
they started their own independent business. Um, they separated themselves. They had individuals that were um, looked at or viewed as mentors. Um, they were convinced to, to change their lives and and maybe and separate themselves actually from the city. But it seems like even then, if you don't have the proper thoughts in your mind, formulated in your mind to be productive, you tend to fall prey to some of your old relapse thinking. And um, that's what we've seen, that um, one of the brothers, you know, he felt that uh, his lifestyle wasn't a big of an issue, and, and, and he wanted to stay in his community. And um, he, he ended up getting a, a life sentence. Um, currently, you know, um, residing in um, Nebraska, corrections, you know, um, during that time also that one of the brothers had children. I mean, I had a child. Um, I reflected on that as well. Um, I was locked up, and my daughter uh, was, you know, being born, and I, I felt a certain way about that, but um, luckily I had the judge that um, convicted me. He let me out on a, on a pass um, to see my daughter being born and allowed me to wear my, my street clothes. I had some street clothes brought to me so I could take a picture with my daughter um, at, when I was um, still locked up. Uh, and I didn't. And the other good thing is I didn't have the uh, the orange on or I didn't have the, the handcuffs on when I took that picture with my daughter. So I, I thank Judge um, Donald Prescott for allowing me to um, go visit my daughter. And um, he was also the judge to expunge my record, my criminal history. Um, so after about 10 years, um, I started doing, you know, I started finding it hard for me to get a, a really good job to provide for my family due to my criminal um, background. And um, so I, I applied for an expungement of my record. And so coincidentally, <laughs> Judge Indicott is the one that expunged my record. And he was like, Steve, you know, when I go out to the courtroom, he was like, Steve, uh, where have I heard that name from before? And I just smiled, and he was like, you know what? He was like, Stephen Abraham, I'm really impressed with you. He said, I checked all your references. He's like, because I wanted to make sure that you changed your life. He's like, because I knew the background you came from. He's like, I want to make sure that you changed your life. He's like, every reference that you gave me spoke very highly of you. He's like, and I really appreciate the letter that you wrote um, describing the changes that you took throughout your life. He was like, yeah. he was like, if you know, he's like, you know, you're not supposed to be personally connected with a um, a, a person in regards to uh, seeing them grow up. He was like, but I did see you grow up. He was like, and that's why I'm, I'm going to expunge your record, you know, clear record. He was like, because you did everything you, um, positive. He's like, you stayed positive and focused. And um, he's like, I'm proud of the changes that you made in your life. And, um, the prosecutor, you know, of course, the prosecutor was like, hey, are you sure you're going to do this? And the judge looked at him, and he hit his gavel down, and that was the end of that. And he was like, Steve, he was like, um, he's like, come up here and uh, give me a hug. And 
I went up to the um to the you know to the stand and uh, gave him a hug. He's like, don't let me down, and I haven't let him down ever since. So it's a personal story, uh, and I think that experience. I think you know, as far as me being on, um, you know, something like a committee to to really go back in and get and give individuals hope. Um, so that they can see tangible substance, um, you know, I think that would really um, calm down a lot of the issues because I, I, I come from a family of individuals that um, long-time incarcerated rates, um, I, I, you know, I can't even begin to tell you all the things that my family members done. So um, as far as my credibility, based off my family history of, of incarcerated individual, individuals, uh, a lot of those individuals know me, um, and so I think that will give hope and confidence to those uh, to the um, incarcerated individuals. So, Steve, I'm curious. Then we're gonna we'll shift gears here as as we're winding down. You guys have have covered a, a ton of really good information. If you were to be sitting across the table from someone right now who was was struggling with these issues, maybe they were struggling with reentry, maybe they were released and and didn't get any help, um, and now they're trying to find a job, they're they're bouncing around on couches, whatever it might be. What advice would you say to that person if you were sitting right across the table from them? How, what would you tell them to help them? Well, uh, when you say that, I, I think about my job at Sienna Francis House, where I worked at for two and a half years, where I worked it with the Miracles Program, and I ran across a lot of those individuals that um, that they just felt they felt like they were going to go back in. Um, I would tell them, I was like, you know what? First, we're going to change your thought process because thoughts fuel action, and if you think neg- negatively then you're going to do negative things. It's just, uh, um, that's just um, common sense 101. And so what I do is, is I ask them to create a list, almost like a self-sufficient contract that says, let's go over some achievable goals. And those achievable goals will be um, things that they know that they can, can complete. Um, they may be as simple as uh, cutting down on smoking. They may be as, as simple as forgiving individuals by writing them a letter and, and mailing it to them or um, contacting them all the time. And I mean, by forgiving individuals, it could be relatives. It doesn't have to actually be person that they uh, victimize or forgive them of the, um, why they were incarcerated. But I also tell them that even ones that weren't, um, there's a couple things I do. I set an empty chair for the person. I have them um, imagine that they're talking with the, the person that they hurt. And um, I have some questions wrote down on a piece of paper. And, they would, you know, we'll go over them. And there's been some emotional time. I mean, um, dealing with, especially with individuals that were in gangs that uh, actually took, maybe have took someone's life or... Uh, hurt the individual uh, that, you know, those are emotional times because they are um, regretting the things that they've done. So my advice would also start off with changing your thoughts, 
uh, the self-sufficiency contract, which establishes a, a plan or structure, which it, it makes you be disciplined on your decision making. And then the next thing is, is 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 connecting with resources. And some individuals will be like, well, Steve, why did you connect that individual with resources right away? It's like, well, every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It, it, it doesn't take a long time for the resources to kick in, but we see a lot of the times where people have the, the, the resources at their fingertips and they still tend to go back um, to the way of life that they, they, um, they know. And they may not even see it as a, bad, as a bad thing because they grew up in that culture and they really believe that that's the, that life is, a, is, is fine. So, you know, as far as telling someone things, a lot of people have, you know, told us a lot of things in our lives. And it's up to us to make that decision to actually do it. So I just felt that the thought process is the number one thing that needs to be um, handled when you're dealing with individuals. You have to change your thinking. You have to reestablish hope in their thoughts and in their mind because I can only imagine, you know, living day by day, watching individuals um, pass away that you love while you're incarcerated, Um, friends, family, um, different things. You're missing out as far as your child's growth, um, your parents. You know, there's a lot of different things that individuals go through, holidays, holidays. you know, those are, um, tra- that's traumatic. So addressing those traumas, the underlying conditions are very important. And so we would get that out as far as um, our discussion. Yeah, I, that's fantastic, man. I would completely agree. Completely agree with everything you just said. Paul, I'm going to ask you the, the same question. You know, what if you were, and I might even add something onto that too, if, if you had an individual who was struggling and, or maybe they're just frustrated with the fact that it just seems like the, the state of Nebraska and, and the governor just, they don't care about the fact that according to, according to the UN, we're essentially torturing people who are inside the Department of Corrections. What would you tell the someone to to put them down a constructive path and, and not let that frustration eat at them. Well, the, um, you know, I liked what they, uh, you know, if you watch the rise program, um, those guys have, uh, I, I try not to reinvent the wheel too much, but you know, part of it is, 
is building relationships. That was what I did, you know, in doing mental health counseling. I mean, that's the, the, the tool that we use uh, in mental health counseling is the relationship. So uh, Tila Mickles from Compassion and Action, she, uh, she said when I go, she told me when you go in there, you got to do three things to help these guys. Uh, first of all, you show up and keep showing up, and that validates them. Validate. What does validate mean? Well, through the relationship, you show that they're valuable enough for you to give your time um, and energy to be concerned about their life. That's validation. And then she said, once you can validate people, then you can motivate people because that relationship gives you the strength to influence their life. Uh, once you can uh, motivate them, then you steer them towards uh, what um, – Stephen was talking about, which is that change of thinking and moving towards education, uh, education and rehabilitation. Those are the things that you do once you can motivate somebody. But the validation, uh, the underlying um, self-image, Homeboy Industries uh, program, Father Boyle says that the homework for every guy that comes into that program, and these are some of the most gang uh, gang-affected guys with deaths and, and so forth. But he says the, the, the homework that every one of them has to do is the absent parent trauma, uh, major traumas in their life because of uh, intergenerational incarceration. And you have to uh, try and acknowledge those issues when you're working with people to look at uh, what what's affected them. That's part of what you do in your relationship. If I was talking to somebody, I mean, that's a long-term process if I'm doing mental health work, but um, getting at those issues quickly, and, and uh, I like to put people together. I mean, that's why one thing I've learned by being on this corner, I mean, all these people that I'm talking about that I've met, I've learned from, they all just came up to me on this corner. I mean, that's Stephen Abraham. <laughs> he and I had met before, and then um, he came down here on the corner, and we talked, the guy across the street, um, that worked as an electrician. He came over. I just learned from people. I've had two guys this morning. One guy's brother is on uh, sex offense crimes and is on parole and can't get work. And he came over and thanked me and told me his story. Um, connecting people that have positive stories with other people, that's, that's what I see as, as really powerful. And um, the one other factor that I've kind of come across, and Steve can confirm this uh, out of Omaha movie confirms it is you've got a target population of extremely high risk people that are going to go into the criminal justice system. If you don't do something now, and that is people that have a parent that's incarcerated. I, I truly, I, I, I can't overestimate overstate the, the certainty with which you're going to go to prison. If you have a, a parent that's been chronically incarcerated, it's 90%. So if you want to target a population, I've been talking to Steve and some other people about having a family advocate for you when you go to prison so that they can maintain contact between you and your kids, and they can do everything they can to, to pro- provide what I would call a firewall between your kids and incarceration. And then you become a part of that co-parenting, and then you advocate for those kids where they're living in the community, the guys in out of Omaha. Uh, got some help, um, just barely enough help to get them out of the gang life. But you need to provide that to kids of every person that's incarcerated. And you could stem the tide of people coming into prison um, by probably 75%. 
if you just target that one population with resources. You know, that's just one other plug I wanted to put in there. The Out of Omaha movie is really powerful way to to see this as a documentary. It shows six years of these kids' lives in some of the worst gang-infested, uh, poverty-stricken area um, of the community and how their lives are just caught up with guns and, and uh, gang stuff. It's on. Uh, it's available through uh, iTunes. It's available on Stars Cable Channel. It's av- available on Amazon. I really encourage people to watch it because we can talk about this all day. Steve does a great job of describing it, but he and I watched the movie together, and, and uh, that's where when you see a real-life situation playing out in front of you. And, and uh, I, the director of Rise has worked with um, – the younger brother in that movie who's serving life sentence in Tecumseh and said he's, he really likes this guy and um, likes working with him. And he's trying to get him through the rise of character development program, even though he's in there for life. But that's, you know, that little difference between getting the right amount of help uh, to get people out and doing things like Steve's doing versus now the younger brother of those brothers is serving life in prison at $40,000 a year. Um, it's a very tenuous operation. If we don't provide the resources to those families, um, those are things I was saying earlier that the director of corrections does not have control over. We have to provide those kinds of support in the community. Um, and then the the director of corrections said, I told him about this idea in a letter. And he said he would, he would participate. He can't take the lead on it because he doesn't have the resources. So I'm trying to get the community right now to step up and, and focus resources on every family member of guys that are incarcerated. So guys inside can still be dads and their kids can have a life um, outside of poverty and outside of gangs. That's the last I have to say. <laughs> Steve, I'll, I'll ask you in closing, are there, uh, is there any contact information that you would like to pass along, any pertinent information, websites, email, phone number, either for yourself or for an organization that you feel people should reach out to if they have questions or need help? Well, I, I, will, I would like to say this is that um, first and foremost, um, thank you for allowing me to come on to the show to discuss this very serious topic and, um, you know, a, a lot of individuals get forgotten when they're incarcerated. And we're just letting those individuals know that they're not forgotten. We're here for them. Um, they may hear our voice um, sometime, but just to let them know that we're here for them and we haven't forgotten them. Um, you know, as far as uh, organizations that work well with returning citizens, um when I was at Sienna Francis House, I know we did a lot of things through the Miracles Program. I've seen a lot of good things uh, by Frank Bailey. Um, he also has Bailey's Counseling Services. Um, they do a really good job with individuals um, transitioning. And also uh, the Stevens Center, they also have a, a, a program that they do um, for individuals that have been incarcerated. Uh, if you want my honest opinion, is is that we're really going to have to work with the Department of Corrections. They have things that are currently in place that aren't too bad, but I, I really believe that they need the individuals that have a, the experience, that have like experiences of those uh, that they're serving, 
to be the facilitators, um, that's going to reestablish confidence within um, everyone. I mean, the correctional officers are going to see the benefits of this, uh, the warden, uh, the inmates. They will, everyone will see the benefits of this, and especially the family. Um, one thing that we know is very important that contributed to that Mother's Day riot was individuals not being allowed to see their family. And that's the thing that a lot of people, um, some people may not want to talk about, but it's, they say, well, why? you mean to tell me that that caused that big issue? Yeah. If, you, if you're locked up and you know that you're, you're, you're not seeing your loved ones, that's going to weigh down heavily on you. Um, there's not enough reading of books. There's not enough lifting of weights. There's not enough of going uh, and um, to programs to make Good. up for the lack of your your loved ones, your family members. So, um, I have a, um, a organization called SA Consulting that um, we're looking to do that, reestablish value within the people um, transitioning out of um, incarceration and before incarceration uh, while they locked up and before incarceration, because we know that the issues start with the family. Once you change the culture of the family, you're going to see a lot of positive things. And uh, just like with myself, I have seven children, and none of my children have been locked up yet. (laughs) And uh, my son is 22, and I was locked up before the age of 22. Um, So I felt like I accomplished a big hurdle um, that was, you know, I didn't think was could be accomplished. My, I mean, my brother was one of the youngest inmates to be incarcerated at NSP, you know. Um, so I, I felt by keeping my children from out of incarceration, doing positive things, they're looking at their father do positive things, and their mother uh, contributed to knocking down that recidivism will in, in my family. So, and, and that's all I have to say. Paul, I'll ask you the same question. Yeah, hey, first, I, I, I want to echo what uh, Stephen said, is that uh, I really appreciate you uh, giving us the opportunity. I, figure, I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. Uh, this is really what we're trying to do, is look for opportunities to share information and having receptive community members like yourself interested. Um, is great. I really appreciate it. The one thing that Steve is saying is uh, the um, uh, involvement of previously incarcerated individuals. The uh, homeboy industries that I may- mentioned earlier, it's in Los Angeles, and uh, it is run by, managed by people that are previously incarcerated. They, they are a uh, majority of the staff there. Uh, they are managed, they're in management positions there. Uh, it, it lends a whole different uh, strength um, of material to the whole fabric of the operation when you have those kind of people that have gone through what like Steve has gone through and, and their lives have been turned around. Um, I, I didn't let Steve tell his story real quickly, but if you got two minutes, Steve can tell you a very interesting story about the, the guy that runs Homeboy Industries. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. to. Okay, yeah, um, so the, inter- the interesting story of Paul, because he finds, you know, he's like, man, how, 
how is that even possible? I was like, I don't know, you know, but um, God works in a mysterious way or our higher power works in mysterious ways. Um, so during my time of, um, of my gang life, um, I, I had interactions with a lot of different people, but specifically I had interactions with an individual that um, helped um, Father G start Homeboys Industries. Um, I, I'll go, I, like, I call him by the name of Beto. Um, I met Beto during my interactions of, of doing, um, like I said, gang interactions and such, and um, never even imagined that our lives would take this precarious turn. And so I, I, one day I was, you know, watching the TV, and I seen a 60-minute special. I, I, I believe it was a 60-minute special or CNN special. And it was talking about gang intervention. So it caught my eye, and I was like, man, you know, I wonder what they're talking about. So then as I start to look, I see a familiar face, and he's the headlining of, of this series. And I'm like, wait a minute, I know this person. And it took me a while to re- actually remember because I had been out of the life so long. And I was like, wait a minute, that's Beto. And so – I was just shocked that he and he was talking about all the things of similarity to us. So when we talk about similarities with um, people that have been incarcerated, there's also similarities to people that have changed their lives. They they thought positive. They they believed in themselves. They valued themselves, and that's all. That's what he was talking about. And then it talks about the homeboys industry model where they have individuals that have been incarcerated with like experiences, being the facilitators, the teachers, the ones that run the organization. Um, In a short, Father G is there for support. And uh, some people, you know, will jokingly say, oh, well, the, the, the inmates are running the building now. It's like, well, guess what? Some of those individuals that was incarcerated took bad turns. That didn't make them good or bad people. You know, um, they made bad decisions in their lives and, and they're now they, they're looking to fix it. And given the opportunity, they could actually be a better teacher than those that may have got the educational experience. So, um, yeah, that was, that was my, my story about the homeboys industry. I mean, you know, it really took me by surprise to see Beto um, doing positive things. But then again, it didn't take me by surprise because, you know, sometimes you just know those individuals that have that positive um, attitude, that mind state, and that they, they they were bound to make a positive change if they were given the right resources and tools. And that's what happened um, in that instance. Man, that is that's a small world. It is a small world, but that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. So, gentlemen, I want to, again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for everything that you're doing. I will, I will make sure I keep in touch with the both of you. Um, and if you feel that you have a new update, you're, you're more than welcome to come back onto the show. We'd love to hear from you and, and hear what's going on. So the door is always open for you both. Yeah. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. Stop by and visit. I chat with people whenever they come by. I'm down here during the day, uh, weekdays, uh, Monday through Friday. Steve gotcha. comes down, different people stop by. So, Yeah. Anybody that's in the area or would like to make a road trip, 
please feel free to stop on by and visit Paul, hear a little bit more about it. Don't forget, of course, you can check us out on our website, survivingthesystem.org. You can take a look at us on Facebook as well at facebook.com, Surviving the System. And thank you all very much again for your time. Gentlemen, have a good day. And ladies and gentlemen, I will talk to you next week. It may be easy to look at all the corruption and manipulation in the system and feel hopeless. Here at Surviving the System, we hold to the belief that greatness is born in the midst of extraordinary struggles. You were created with a purpose, with infinite potential, and many have lost sight of that fact. We're here to remind you of who you are. The best revenge is success. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.